let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, your word says uh, that it is given to help us trust Jesus uh, for salvation and that through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, uh, we will be equipped to live as his followers, equipped to do the good works that you call us to do. We pray now that through the work of your spirit, your word would do its good work in our lives, uh, that we would trust Jesus and know life and live a life of love following him. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, going through a big book like the book of Deuteronomy is a bit like crossing the Nullarbor. After a while you kind of lose track of where you are. Uh, you lose sight of the big landmarks that can orient you. Uh, so it's good from time to time to refresh the screen, as it were, to locate ourselves in our journey through the book by reminding ourselves of what, where we have come from and where we're going. Uh, the bulk of Deuteronomy is two speeches given by Moses on the plains of Moab, on the banks of the Jordan River, from where the Israelites could see for themselves the land of promise, the land that they'd been travelling uh, towards for the last 40 years. Uh, there's the shorter speech, chapters 1 to 4, where Moses reminded the people of how they got to where they were and why it had taken them so long to get there after leaving Egypt. He spoke of their rebellion and that they were only there because the Lord was the only God, the God who had committed himself to their forefathers and he was almighty, faithful and gracious. No dumb idol like the gods of the surrounding nations. And that's followed by the longest speech of chapters 5 to 26 of which we're now nearing the end. Ahead of us uh, lies... Uh, the renewal of the covenant, preparations for entering the land with the transfer of leadership to Joshua, the song of Moses and his blessing, and finally we'll end the book with the death of Moses. Now this longer speech started in chapter 5 by recalling Israel's experience at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, where they'd enter into covenant relationship with the Lord God and reminding the Israelites of the requirements of that covenant, the ten words spoken directly to them by the Lord himself. Moses, in chapters 6 to 11, had then gone again through their history, a history of rebellion, to reinforce that it was only by God's grace and steadfast love that they were here on the border of the land, and it was only by being faithful to the Lord, loving and fearing him wholeheartedly, that they could occupy the land, come to the fulfilment of the promise. He was telling them that it was not by bread alone, but by the word of God that they would live. And from chapter 12, he's been giving them that word, the Lord's statutes, commands and rules, telling them how they can live in the land as the Lord's people, live as those who will continue to know the Lord's grace and kindness in relationship with him for generations to come. So where are we now? Chapter 24, well we're almost at the end of Moses' second speech, at the end of these statutes and regulations. But when you're on a long journey, it's also good to be reminded from time to time of why you are taking that journey. 
Well, we're on this journey because Deuteronomy is a book for us believers in Jesus. Deuteronomy is a book about the grace of the righteous God, the only God, the Lord who rules heaven and earth, and how those who know his grace in his rescuing them from slavery and death are to respond to that grace, to respond by living in relationship with him, by trusting him and conforming their actions and their attitudes to his will, his will revealed in his word. And so Deuteronomy is a great book for believers in Jesus because we too are recipients of the grace of the same almighty God through believing in his son Jesus. Recipients of a grace which has rescued us from slavery to sin and death. And so we too are called to live in relationship with our saving God by trusting him and conforming our actions and attitudes to his will revealed in his word. Oh yes, our place as believers in Jesus is, is different in God's salvation plan from that of the Israelites. We come to Deuteronomy knowing that it's been fulfilled, that it's reached its goal in the teaching, life, death and rising of our Lord Jesus, knowing that we now relate to the living God in the new covenant that Jesus has brought about through his death. We don't relate to him on the basis now of that covenant made at Sinai. And yes, our circumstances in the 21st century have changed. We don't live in a theocracy, in a God-ruled nation-state, but in pluralistic and a pluralistic modern democracy. We don't live in uh, an ancient agricultural society without electricity, roads, refrigeration, modern plumbing, social security. Oh yes, the changes are immense. But Deuteronomy expresses the goodwill of the good, unchanging God for that society, making concrete in their circumstances what it is to love God and love their neighbour. And believers in Jesus are also called to love God and love our neighbours. So thinking about what love looked like in their circumstances helps us to see what it is to love in our circumstances. In fact, where we receive Deuteronomy as it is, the word of the living God to help us trust Jesus and to equip us to live for him with lives of love and doing good, Deuteronomy is actually very helpful to us and helpful to our children. It operates, you see, as the great antidote to many of the failings of 21st century Western Christianity, where we have become conformed to the values and thinking of our society, failings that I, too, or I all too often see in myself and others, and failings that frustrate love of God and others. I've listed some of those failings, self-preoccupation, privatised religion, a disproportionate emphasis, taking on a secular mindset, spiritual self-reliance and self-sufficiency and ingratitude. Deuteronomy 24 is an example of how God's law exposes and confronts these failings. And in so doing, it will help us live trusting Jesus and doing the good that brings him honour. Now, in a sense, I've given you the application before the exposition, and that, of course, should ring all your alarm bells. So, as we go through this, test all things.
But let's think about how Deuteronomy 24 confronts and exposes those failings. Self-preoccupation. Much of our society with its selfies and running narratives on our lives on social media, you know, Facebook, Twitter, the others, much of our society is self-preoccupied, if not narcissistic. And Western Christians can have a faith that's also self-preoccupied. Our salvation, our prosperity, our family, our freedoms, our worship experiences, our all worthwhile things. But we're me and mine. And we and our fill up our thinking, are the focus of our concerns. Something is very wrong with our Christian lives. The instruction of Deuteronomy resolutely turns us out to others, others who are in different circumstances from ourselves. It turns us out to think about how we are behaving in our relationships with them. Deuteronomy insists that God's people should be preoccupied with loving others, not with themselves, and that we must not hide ourselves from our neighbours, especially our poor and needy neighbours, but think about them and their welfare. Let me give you two examples. First, from the end of the chapter. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Now, this is a provision that had already been commanded in Leviticus and is being repeated before they enter the land. Not all was to be taken to allow the landless, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, the dignity of enjoying the goodness of the land that God was giving his people through their own labour. Although they didn't have land, they are to be able to share in the blessing of the land that the Lord gives his people. The three examples concern the three staples, grain for bread, olives for oil, grapes for wine. In God's provision, the economically weakest were to have access to the opportunities they needed to provide for themselves. A cost to the economically powerful, the landowners, the cost of not getting out for themselves from their asset everything they possibly could. And in verse 19, those landowners are told that they would actually enjoy God's provision as they were conscious of sharing it with others in need. Now, there's a lot to think about here. You know, is this use of property consistent with, say, business practices of our time that are focused on maximising profit and return to shareholders at the cost of the jobs who they, who, of those who may not be able to get another job, taking away from them opportunity to share in the benefits of our common economy by their own labour. But for now, we ought to register that the Lord expected his people going about their normal lives, making their livelihoods, to be conscious of others and their needs and to share in making provision for them. 
Or perhaps, more controversially, consider verses 8 and 9. Take care, in a case of leprous disease, to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priest shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. Now this is the only reference to the regulations surrounding unclean diseases in Deuteronomy. It's reinforcing the authority of the Levitical priest to direct a person to be quarantined, to live outside the camp, an authority given to them in Leviticus. Now that authority is supported by reference to the Lord's treatment of Miriam in Numbers 12, where the Lord, verse 14, insisted that Miriam, who developed a skin disease, be shut out in judgment, be shut outside the camp for seven days. Quarantining of the infected both preserved purity and protected life and livelihoods. Now think about this. Being shut out was no doubt distressing to the person with the disease and burdensome on their family. But it was not just about them and their experience. Spread of infection then and now impoverishes many. Public health was not to be left to private judgment based on personal experience. The priesthood was the group entrusted with those decisions. And, and there was no guarantee that their decisions, which did, as you'll see in Leviticus, involve close observation, no guarantee that their decisions would be perfect, that they'd always get it right, that they wouldn't make mistakes. Yet despite their fallibility, the Israelites had to abide by their decisions. And there was to be no false compassion where the perceived need or grief of the individual with the disease was allowed to undermine the protection of the whole community. The decisions of those trained and entrusted with the responsibility to make those judgments had to be obeyed. You see, love looks beyond ourselves to the common good and it sustains those institutions that seek the common good. Love and justice commit to protecting the health of the community. And let me say, that has obvious implications for believers in our society, where, for example, there are debates about vaccination. We should be grateful for a government that sustains a public health system and that supports vaccination and we should participate so that there is in our community a herd immunity that protects the most vulnerable, those poor in immunity, the youngest and the oldest. You see, getting your children vaccinated or yourself vaccinated is not just about you. It's actually about protecting the most vulnerable in our society. Now, our authorities won't be perfect, but by God's common grace, they have attested knowledge of disease and their decisions should be respected that is love as Samoa has found out it's not the vaccination but the disease it seeks to prevent that should be feared and that is true having seen a baby with tetanus <laughs> vaccination is just a wonderful gift of God okay and if you want to take that up with me you wait until you've seen tetanus or measles or, or things that maybe you've never experienced because of vaccination. 
right? We in love sacrifices our individual interests to the common good. The law tells me love engages with the needs of others beyond myself and my particular interests and experience. So let's think about it for yourself. Do you give thought to provision for the poor in your daily living, in your work, in the way you employ? Or do you think the common good ought to be accommodated to your needs, you know, whether that is in thinking I ought to be allowed to break the traffic rules, say, to speed because I just have to get there, or in observing health regulations I find burdensome? Do you think the common good should be accommodated to your need, or do you actually humble yourself to pursue what is good for all, like keeping the traffic rules or public health policy. The law turns us away from our preoccupation with ourselves. And the law opposes privatised religion. Uh, we live in a society that can suggest religion is just about what you do in private and should have no impact on public life. It's just about me and my beliefs. And believers, you see, in our society can take on that mindset because it's actually easier for us. It means our beliefs aren't exposed to criticism. But Deuteronomy insists that faith, working through love, embraces all of life. It is love seen in action in the world. It thinks about the kind of society that our attitudes and actions create, and it seeks to create a just and kind society. And nearly all of chapter 24 teaches this, but two examples. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. Now, a pledge was something given to secure a loan, something put into the hands of the creditor. And a mill, in this case, was a hand mill, that is, two stones, one on top of the other, that were ground. The bottom one was grooved, where you could grind grain to make flour. And a mill, a hand mill, was an essential piece of equipment for every household. Without a mill, they couldn't grind their grain and make their daily bread, and there were no shops to buy flour, and flour's not as durable. It doesn't last as long, can't be kept like grain. Here, the creditor, the person who's made the loan, is forbidden to take something that was essential for life, because that was like taking a life. And no monetary debt is equivalent to or worth a life. Now, you see, the Lord expects believers to be concerned with a just society, with the regulation of commercial practice in a way that protects life and does not compound someone's poverty by taking something essential for life. In our society, that might be, you know, taking the car from someone when it's their only means of getting to work and providing for their families. Or again, verse 14, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he's one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he's poor and he counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Now, a hired worker was not like a servant, part of a household where his needs would be met. 
Hired workers were paid a daily wage, often for short-term work, like harvesting, and they were relying on what they earned that day to eat, and their wage should not be withheld for whatever reason. Hired workers were vulnerable, needing that work to eat at the mercy of those who would employ them. And the Lord is saying that no one should be deprived of their daily needs. And it actually is our business. You see that verse 15? Lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Unjust paying conditions are not merely a social or economic issue. They're actually sins against the just God who is the source of all our wealth and who expects justice to be given to all those made in his image. Now, on a a personal level, for example, we should be people where we have the money who pay our bills promptly. But this doesn't just apply to the poor and individual dealings. Big corporations that delay paying invoices and squeeze their contractors by denying cash flow or who exploit their market power to pay less than the cost of production to increase their own profits, they are acting unrighteously. And sin always brings a judgment. There's no long-term prosperity in that. Businesses that exploit someone's visa conditions to pay them less than the award, who seek to prevent them from accessing justice by threats of deportation, they are sinning. You see, ours has never been a privatised faith. Christians believe economic power should be regulated so that the poor and the economically vulnerable are treated with dignity and not exploited. And it shouldn't surprise us in our society that where the worship of the true God is abandoned in favour of worshipping idols like money, the principles of fair economic treatment are also being lost and the economically powerful becoming a law to themselves. But believers in Jesus should be faithful to the living God who is the God of all. And so we should practice just economic dealings and encourage and expect that in our society. We shouldn't turn a blind eye to things like wage theft just because we are being paid okay or enjoy getting cheaper meals in restaurants. So we need to live a public faith. But to live a public faith, we actually need to be thinking about these things and not sharing the disproportionate emphasis of much evangelical Christianity, people like us. Sometimes evangelicals, you know, people who are committed to doctrine and to the study of the Bible and its authority, well, we can become a people preoccupied with those things. You know, whether we're having a good Bible reading becomes so significant. We can become preoccupied with dotting doctrinal I's and crossing theological T's. Now, I love doctrine, and true doctrine is essential. And having a regular plan of Bible reading must not be neglected. (coughs) But Jesus reminded another group who are very zealous for reading their Bibles that the law confronts us with weightier matters, justice, mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. Am I acting justly 
is a more important question than did I have a good quiet time this morning? It's a question about who you are. And you can always catch up on your Bible reading. Of course, it's not either or, but one does take precedence. Am I acting justly? We should be thinking about justice, mercy and faithfulness. And again, the law shows us, teaches us these things. Consider this part of Deuteronomy 24. Now, this is a very famous passage because it's quoted by the Pharisees when they questioned Jesus about divorce in Matthew 19. As Jesus observes there, <coughs> this passage doesn't command divorce but regulates an existing practice. And the purpose of the regulation, as we'll see, is to protect the weaker party, to protect the women, the woman. <coughs> Now, verses 1 to 4 tell a story. It's a whole series of ifs. You know, if a bloke marries and he finds some fault with the woman and sends her away and she remarries, right? a whole series of ifs leading up to the punchline, which is the prohibition on the first husband from remarrying his divorced wife. That's the command here. Her former husband, verse 4, who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. <coughs> now in the story, the giving of the divorce certificate is important, for it means that the wife's remarriage is legitimate and not adultery. But that divorce creates a boundary that must not be crossed by the first husband. Her marriage to her second husband is not immoral, but it has put her off limits to him, defiled by him and to him. Defiled to him both by his declaring in the divorce that there's some indecency in her and defiled to him because he has sent her away to become the husband to another man. Taking her as his wife again would suggest that there was no real cause for the divorce and that the sending away was arbitrary and that the first marriage should have been continuing. Now, what is the effect of this regulation of the man's behaviour? And note that it is addressed to the man. It's curtailing his freedom. Well, this regulation prevents the trivialisation of the marriage vow where promises could be set aside at a whim, broken on a pretext. It prevents that trivialisation because it says there is no going back after the divorce. It is serious and final. And it also, in that society, prevents the economic exploitation of the, of the woman by the first husband, whose remarriage was most probably prompted by dowry considerations, gaining access to her dowry or perhaps even exploiting her vulnerability and sense of shame to get her to come back so that the husband could have her labour for the household. Now, the law expected justice and faithfulness in marriage relationships, and the lack of it, it says, is an abomination to the Lord. Or again, verse 7, 
if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The motive for stealing a person here for kidnapping was greed. Perhaps they were being enslaved or sold to repay debt. But where property theft is never punished with death in the law, here alone the penalty for stealing is death, for this crime is like murder. It's robbing someone of life, bringing a social death, whereby they're lost to their families and all the benefits of being in the covenant community of God's people. People's lives and freedoms should be protected. They shouldn't be enslaved, whether that's by the deceit that promises them good jobs in a faraway city, lures them away from their supports and then imprisons them, or whether that brings them out to us as indentured labourers, people who've been sponsored here, always in debt to their sponsors, their passports confiscated and never able to repay. We shouldn't be indifferent to such practices, but support those who are actively trying to free those so enslaved, like the local Rahab ministry here. Or again, verse 16, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each shall be put to death for his own sin. Now, while the sin of parents elsewhere in the law is known to have an effect on their offspring, and that's unavoidable, isn't it? Because we're dependent on our parents to learn how to live in family and society, how to relate to others and to God. Uh, while you know, parents have an effect on their offspring, this is saying that human courts must not punish those who are legally innocent. Now, we take that for granted, but in a contemporary law code, the Code of Hammurabi, if a building collapsed, causing the death of the son of the owner of the building, well, then the son of the builder was to be put to death. Right? Now, this law both establishes the principle of individual responsibility before the law. You are to be judged for your own actions, and it also prevents the powerful from taking excessive vengeance. More, we should, we should think about this. Where we have authority, whether that's in our homes or the classroom or at work, we should make sure that our administration of authority is just punishing people for their own actions, not the actions of others. So, teacher, if you're tempted to keep the whole class back, think about it. There'll be some who'll be feeling very treated very unjustly, right? And, and of course, in our attitudes to others, we must not condemn and damn people for what either their parents or their children have done. We must not let them, in a sense, suffer from a kind of social contagion because of their connection. We have to be just. And in verses 17 to 18, it said we've got to be just to all. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. The sojourner, the fatherless and the widow were vulnerable in the courts for they had no one to represent them in legal proceedings. Their rights before the law, this says, are to be respected. But justice is more than how they're treated in court. 
It is fair treatment, especially in Deuteronomy 24, economically fair treatment. In Israel, in this case, it was their right to access the provision the Lord had made for their economic support, like the gleaning rules. They're not to be prevented from participating in society nor enjoying the provision provided. So again, a just society ensures access to provision made for the poor. And the Lord expects believers to seek a just society. Those living amongst us like refugees should not be denied fair treatment, whether that's in work or in the provision of services. And as you hear this call to justice, think for yourself. Do you engage with questions of justice or just overlook them or worse, are indifferent to them as long as you are doing okay? Do you always treat others fairly? Or do you get impatient with and resentful of the needy? Now, these will, it will cost you to act justly. It costs the Israelites to act this way. But why should an Israelite live this way? Why should we? Well, it's because of the Lord. And because we refuse to take on the secular mindset that excludes the Lord from public life, that denies that God is the source of our prosperity, the righteous God who actively judges individuals and society. Consciousness of the Lord and his actions is throughout chapter 4. Why should the husband not take back that divorced wife? Well, it's because the land is his gift and it shouldn't be a place for sin. Why no kidnapping? It's because the Lord is present amongst his people and evil has to be purged from their midst. Oh, verse 9, health rules. Why? Because they had to remember what the Lord did to Miriam. And then verses uh, 10, following, when you make your neighbour a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he's a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, so that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God, treating the poor with dignity, where his home is respected, and he doesn't have to beg for his daily need for warmth to be met because his only cloak, his cloak, is returned. Treating the poor with dignity, it says, will be righteousness before the Lord your God. Its behaviour reckoned to be in line with his covenant, in line with loyalty to the Lord. Remember who in chapter 10 said he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. It's because of the Lord. Oh, the hired worker, verse 15, can cry to the Lord who will judge in his favour. Verse 19, you leave that wheat to be gleaned so that the Lord may bless you. And yes, verses 18 to 22, you live this way so you remember that you're a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Living this way is good for you because to remember is to live and to forget is life. Sorry, remember is to live and to forget is death. Now, why should Israel live like this? Well, Israel's reality was that they'd been saved by the Lord to live in the Lord's land who was the source of their blessing. 
And the Lord is a God who abhors injustice, including economic injustice. Having received gracious and generous treatment from him, Israel were to show that in their dealings with others. He expected them to treat others as they had been treated by him. Now, why should believers in Jesus live like this? Well, it's because we've been a people who have been saved by the Lord at great cost through the generous gift of his Son. Saved by the Lord to live in the Lord's presence, the Lord who abhors injustice, who is the God of the whole earth and who expects us to treat all others with the same kind of grace and mercy and generosity that we have received from him. That consciousness should flow into everything we do because we have the Spirit. We are always in the presence of the just God. And it should especially engage our thinking in terms of how we work and how we do business, how we deal with those who are indebted to us, with those who are vulnerable to the way we use our power, whether that's economic or legal or political. You see, we are not to be conformed to a world that excludes God. We are always to live in all our dealings conscious of him and who he is. So ask yourself, do you let yourself forget? Act as if you've not received grace and mercy. Act as if the Lord does not see, will not hear and will not judge. Do you allow yourself to do that like the society around you? Oh, do you even start to think that those who are less well off than you are inferior to you? To be rude and abrupt, as if the Lord has not shown you great patience and kindness. The law, does, the law confronts our self-preoccupation, our privatised religion, our disproportionate emphasis and our taking on a secular mindset. And in so doing, it shows up our spiritual self-reliance and self-sufficiency. You know, and I suspect you're like me in this, but, you know, I find it easy mixing with people who are basically like me, you know, nice people, and comparing myself to others in our society, I find it easy to think that I am better than I am and therefore to put more confidence in my own ability to be a basically decent person, to get on and do what God wants all by myself. Now I suspect, in fact I know, that I am not alone in this because we live in a society that wants to insist that by ourselves we can live a perfectly decent life. But you see, the law of God, if I think about it, with its insistence on generosity, integrity, holiness that separates itself from everything impure, with its call for consistent, thoughtful kindness, or with treating all with dignity and justice. The law of God, by not allowing the Lord to be taken out of the picture, insisting that he should be loved and trusted and obeyed even when it seems to go against my self-interest and that his righteousness should be expressed in the behaviour of his people always. The law, with its unwavering insistence on measuring our lives against an objective moral standard outside of us, not shaped by us, 
The law humbles me and it humbles you. You see, passing its measure over the way I treat God and others, the law tells me that I am not and cannot be the kind of person who can live in the holy God's presence by myself. I can't rely on myself to be right with God. What I do will never be enough. I fall short of his justice and generosity of his love. And it's not just me, is it? It's you as well. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's actually good for you and for me to be reminded of that. For knowing the law's verdict turns me to the one the law points to, who fulfills the law. It makes me rely on Jesus, who lived that perfect law-keeping life, who died cursed on the cross by the law, taking my curse upon himself, and who rose with the authority to judge and forgive. The law makes me rely on Jesus, not just as a formal assent to doctrine, but desperately as my only hope. You see, the law of God, read and thought about, not just skimmed, but applied to your life, tells us over and over again that it's only in Jesus' death that our failure to keep God's law, my failure of love and justice, can be dealt with. And because it does this, the law helps me counter that other great besetting sin that poisons our Christian lives in the 21st century, and that is ingratitude. It's a paradox, isn't it? We are the most materially blessed of peoples across the century, yet we are more often anxious than thankful. Oh, perhaps not about food and clothing, but our houses, our jobs, our retirement, our appearance, anxious about all sorts of things that will perish. The law, by reminding us of God's holiness, of our sin in our lack of love, of God's judgment, and pointing us to our Saviour, actually brings us to focus on what matters, and that is relationship with the living God whose word is life brings us to focus on what can never be taken away from us, being rescued from a deserved judgment by his son, the Lord Jesus. And so the law helps remind us of the reality of our God's grace and goodness, seen in his law but seen especially in saving us from the law's judgment through his Son. And so the Lord directs you and I to the source of ever-renewed thankfulness. A source of thankfulness, even if we lose everything, life itself, as we most certainly will. And so giving ourselves to read the law and thinking about it actually gives us a heart that can sing with gratitude to the good and holy and righteous God, whose law is good and whose saviour is wonderful. Receiving Deuteronomy with faith is given to us by our God for our good to help us to trust and follow Jesus 
nurtures the life of faith amongst us. And that's why we must study it. So listen to God's word in his law. And if you've got children, share it with your children <coughs> so that you're helped to turn away from a self-preoccupied life to a life of loving others, so that you're helped to turn away from a narrow, privatised faith to one that acknowledges our Lord Jesus to be the Lord of all, of every sphere of life, including our economic life, so that we actually come to live a live by faith in every sphere, live that life which we have in Christ in all of life. Study it so that it can correct you, so that you actually come to love what God loves, so that you become a person who is concerned not just with yourself, but with justice, mercy and faithfulness because that is what he is concerned with. And live that life of justice, mercy and faithfulness because learning from the law how far you fall short of love of God and love of neighbour, you are full of thankfulness for the mercy, grace and love the Lord has shown you in judging your sin justly in Jesus and then in faithfulness to his promises, giving you forgiveness and life through trusting Jesus, showering you with his rich mercy. Live that life of justice, mercy and faithfulness because that is what the Lord has shown you in saving you through the death of his son Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, uh, we do pray in your great mercy that we would not just be hearers who forget but that we would be people who hear and do. Give us grace to reflect on our lives, uh, to help us think about whether in all our dealings but especially in our commercial dealings, in the way we earn and use our money, in the way we interact with others in business, give us grace to ask if we are acting justly and mercifully and faithfully. And where we're not, we pray that you would help us to change so that our lives would honour our Lord Jesus, so that our lives would we show that we know you the true and living God, the just and merciful judge of all. Give us grace to change, taught by your word, so that we would be the salt and light in our community, the different people that you call us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.